to be with you. I um, keep a record of everything that I've preached at every place I preached, and we've been working through the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And we have covered three of them thus far, and this morning we're gonna cover another one of them. So if you have a Bible uh, and would like to turn and follow through this text with me, I'm gonna be speaking from John, John chapter six, and uh, verses one to 14. Before I get to that passage, uh, I, I need to review something that is critical when we cover the Gospel of John, in particular the signs that are contained therein. In John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, John writes a summary statement as to why he wrote his Gospel in the way that he did. It's a perfect summary statement for the Gospel of John, and we find it in John 20 and verses 30 and 31. John says, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. When Jesus spoke the gospel to Nicodemus in John 3.16, it does not say there, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, <clears throat> that whoever believes in him should not perish but go to heaven. That's not what Jesus said. Because going to heaven is not the offer of the gospel. It's the result that you've responded properly to the gospel. But nowhere in the book of Acts do, do the apostles preach and say, come and receive Christ that you might have a home in heaven. Nowhere in the book of Acts is going to heaven presented as an offer of the gospel. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is not a place I enter after I die. Eternal life is a person who enters me before I die. And that person is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 1 John, 5, 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son does not have the life. I say that because John, in verse 31, says, These signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. My last name is Reed because my father's last name was Reed. And the older I get, the more I'm realizing that there are characteristics that I have inherited from my father. In fact, my niece was at Bible school one year, and she came up to me after I was lecturing, and she said, you even, you even walk like granddad walks. Well, I didn't, I didn't take lessons how to learn to walk like my dad does. That is an inherited characteristic. It is inherent in the life from which I was born. And when we receive Christ, we receive 
his life. We receive his person, and inherent in his person are characteristics that we commonly call, for instance, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's a description of the life of Christ. So if you came to our home at Bodenseehof, you would look out into an orchard in the yard that is contained or, or actually adjacent to our property, and you would see apple, plum, prayer, and cherry pear and cherry trees. And I don't go out there this time of year and, and stand in front of an apple tree and scratch my head and ask my wife, what do you think? Is it going to bear figs next year or apples? Well, an apple tree can only produce apples. That is inherent in the life. That is the character of the life of an apple tree, so it produces apples. And the character of the life of Christ is inherent in his life. And when we receive him by his spirit and are born again, we can, we can always assume the fact that Jesus is going to act only and always consistent with his character. Me trying to copy the life of Christ or to imitate, imitate Christ would be like me trying to, to imitate Todd this morning. You would notice immediately when I got that guitar in my hand and opened my mouth that I'm a fake. <laughs> I can't do that. He can. And the Christian life is not a life that we imitate. It's a life that we yield to and, and he actually begins to express based upon our trust and obedience to him as he gains access to all of my person. It's the life of Christ revealed in the life of Peter Reed. Note that it says here that Jesus performed these signs in the presence of his disciples. I, I would argue that the Gospel of John was written more to the church than to those who don't know him. Because when we read in verse 31, but these signs have been written that you may believe, the word believe there in the Greek language is actually in a tense that says that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So this is, this is a rich gospel to teach us how to continue trusting Jesus. And the works of Christ in the Gospel of John are called signs, not miracles, because a sign is a miracle with a message. It teaches us how to trust Jesus. And in particular today, when we get to John chapter 6, it's going to teach us how to trust him when we are called upon to meet the needs of others. They're called signs. You see, the great question in the Christian life is not what am I getting out of my relationship with Christ. That's not the most important question. The most important question about my life in Christ is this one, what's Jesus getting out of it? Can he fulfill his plan? Can he express his life through me? And the second most important question is this one, what are other people getting out of it? What are those closest to me getting out of my relationship with Christ? That's the second most important question. And when we come to John chapter 6 and verse 1, we come to the, the only miracle done by Jesus that is recorded 
in all four Gospels. So if God is repeating himself four times, he has his reasons. So let's read this. John chapter 6, and I'll start reading in verse 1 through verse 5. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountain and sat there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. And therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? I'll stop there. When Jesus is sitting there with his disciples, it had He'd come to the evening time, and the disciples were supposed to have an evening off. And there was this crowd of over 10,000 people. We know that there were 5,000 men there, plus the women and children, so it was a large group of people. And so when the disciples saw this, they said to Jesus, I read out of Mark chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus, the place is desolate and it's already quite late, so send them away so that they may go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. If this isn't a picture of Christian ministry, I don't know what is. We have very romantic ideas of what it is to be used by Christ and to be thrust into what we call Christian ministry. A large part of Christian ministry is being called upon to meet the needs of others when you have needs yourself. A large part of Christian ministry is saying the things that other people don't want to say, doing the things that other people don't want to do, deciding the things that other people don't want to decide. It's not as romantic as we've cut it out to be. But it's wonderful to be there because it is a school in which we relearn the sufficiency of Christ for ourselves. Because you're always brought to the end of yourself. In John's Gospel, Jesus turns to Philip and asks this question, where we'd buy bread. That's significant because they were located in Philip's hometown. And so he singles Philip out. Because if anybody knew where to buy bread, it was Philip. Beware of your hometown. Beware of the situations where you're very much at home. Beware of the situations where you would be tempted to say yourself, to yourself, I've done this a thousand times. Because it is, it is a deceptive uh, element of our lives. We like to lean on our experience. We like to lean on what is familiar to us, what we've done a thousand times. And after almost 40 years in torchbearers, one of the most dangerous scenarios that I head into is a situation that is very familiar to me, done it a thousand times, because I'm tempted to lean on the past rather than the presence of Christ. Jesus asked him a question. And there were over 35 times in the gospel accounts when Jesus asked a person a question, not a rhetorical question. 
but a specific question aimed at a specific individual. And whenever Jesus asked these questions, he was not seeking information that he didn't have. It's not like he was in the dark about something. Whenever he asked a question to a specific individual, he was not seeking information, he was seeking a confession. And their answers to his questions confessed a heart issue and got something out in the open that Jesus wanted to address. That's why he asked those questions. I, I have a um, document on my computer. Uh, it has these 35 questions of Jesus, and it makes for a wonderful preaching series. 35 messages on the questions of Jesus. I've entitled it, Now That's a Good Question. Look at verse 6. This he was saying to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered and said to him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive just a little. He himself knew what he was going to do. So that makes it obvious. He wasn't asking the question because he wanted information. He was asking the question so that when Philip answered it, it would at the same time reveal a heart condition that Jesus wanted to address. What was Philip's answer? 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each one of them just to receive a little. A denarii was one day's wage in that time. And I suppose Philip was trying to make it clear to Jesus that a lot of money wouldn't even buy a little. Well, the fact of the matter is that any atheist could have given the same answer as Philip did. Any atheist, and there's no such word in the scripture, it's just a word fool, to describe a person who denies the existence of God. But any atheist could have given the same answer. Any atheist could have reckoned with that which was physically, visibly, humanly possible, but no more. And there is a sense in which Philip was a confessing Christian, but a practicing atheist. How often does that describe my life? I get strategic in my thinking. I reckon with that which is physically, visibly, humanly possible and no more. Jesus knew what he was going to do. There's not a situation in my life right now for which Jesus is unprepared. When you would walk into our kitchen on the, on the windowsill where the sink is, Gabby spends the time on the stove, I spend the time at the sink. There is this plaque that we have from the Donover Fellowship, a ministry in southern India that, that God brought into being through a woman named Amy Carmichael. And this plaque very simply says, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Jesus knows what he wants to do. He is not shocked. He's not taken off guard. He knows what he wants to do now. It's so comforting to know that Jesus knows. So good to know. 
That Jesus is not shocked by the need that faces me or anybody close to me. Jesus knows. I love the verse in in Psalm 147 and verse 3 where it says, God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars and he gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. He has an infinite number of ideas as to how to deal with the things that puzzle me. Jesus knows, and Jesus knew what he was going to do. And it says that he specifically asked this to test him. God does not tempt us. He tests us. A temptation is aimed at what is humanly possible. A test is aimed at what is divinely possible. Another way of saying that, a a temptation is aimed at my flesh and a test of God is aimed at my faith and it's intended to mature me. And Jesus was saying this to test him. In James chapter one and verse two, God's word says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the Testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Here's the reality of our lives. While we're here until either we go to be with Jesus or he comes to pick us up, the reality is this. Our test will stop being tested, excuse me, our faith will stop being tested as soon as our faith is no longer needed. But until that time, it's gonna be tested over and over and over again. And the reason why it's tested is because that test is intended to reveal the sufficiency of Christ to me in a new way. And that's the positive side of a test. It is intended to show me in an even greater way, to an even greater extent, what Jesus can do. And I won't graduate from this school until I'm with Jesus. So we need to settle into this. We are in the school being tested in our faith. Let us also be reminded of the fact that it's never our strength that's tested, it's our faith that's tested. When I was in college, uh, my first year, I found out that if you were an RA in the student dorm, you could get a discount on your student fees and on your housing and your meal plan. Because I'm from Scottish heritage, I latched onto that statement and I applied for the job. And I got it, and so my second year of college, I was an RA in the dorm. I played tennis and soccer in college, and because of that, my boss thought that I would have a special understanding with the other athletes on campus. It's a nice thought, but there is a universe of difference between a tennis player and a football player. So I got on my floor and there were the football players, the basketball players, and the wrestlers. 
These guys did some things that I can't mention in public, but just to give you an idea of what kind of guys they were, one night they kidnapped the security guard, wrapped him in duct tape, put him in a shopping cart, and left him in the student lounge where the janitor found him the next morning. Alive, but they found him there. And I thought, I'm going to be the next burnt offering unless I find some way to bridge the gap between us and kind of make friends with these guys. So two doors down were the two captains of the football team, Joey and Kenny. Kenny played middle linebacker. He looked like he had swallowed a flat screen TV and it's like he had to walk sideways through the doors and he had no neck. <laughs> and I walked up to him one day and I said, Joey, what do, you, you know, do you have any hobbies? What do you do in your spare time? And he said, well, we go work out. And one day I got up all my courage and I said, can I go with you? I don't understand what would be funny about that. But anyway, <laughs> I went into the weight training center where all the football players were. And to my horror, on all four walls were mirrors. And here are these guys. They love to stand in front of these mirrors and work out. And then Mr. Bean comes in, kind of stands next to the truck, and Joey says, listen, we're going to start with the bench press here. So I lie down, and he said, just do a rep of 10. And he put the bar on my chest, and I couldn't get it off. And then he literally did this. He grabbed it, put it back on the rack, and said, we'll start with the bar. I think it weighed 40 pounds. And so I did my reps, and I went to the other stations, and I was trying to bridge a gap into his life. And a couple of days later, I'm walking around campus like this. Not because I was huge, but because I couldn't comb my hair for a week. It hurt so bad. I don't know if any of you have done that before. And then I talked to Kenny and I said, you know, these guys were studying kinesiology and sports and stuff. I said, you know, when can I comb my hair or take notes in class again? And he said, Peter, we have a day of training and then a day of rest. And I said, praise God, day of training, day of rest. Because if you do it right, what you're actually doing is tearing down the muscle tissue and you need to give it a chance to recover and regenerate. And if you do that properly, the muscle will grow bigger than it was before. Obviously, I didn't continue. <laughs> but I learned something about muscle tissue that year, and it's very simply this. A muscle needs to be used in order to grow. A muscle needs to be used in order to grow. If you don't use muscle tissue, we experience what is called atrophy. And the German word is even better. It, it's a word that literally means uh, muscle shrinkage. And some of you have been in the hospital, perhaps broken a bone, and not used your muscle tissue, and you've realized this. It's atrophy. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could increase muscle tissue by reading a book about weightlifting? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Friends, we cannot learn the life of faith, and in particular, the sufficiency of Christ by singing about it, listening to a podcast, or reading a book. The only way that our faith will mature is by doing it. And so God is a very good teacher, and 
I think it was uh, Stephen Olford who said, he will not show us anything new until our obedience is up to date. And if I don't learn it the first time, he'll provide another opportunity and another and another and another. But it's not because he's cruel, because the flip side of the testing of my faith is also the revelation of his sufficiency. And that's, that's something very positive to look forward to. So let's read on in verse 8 of John chapter 6. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, and likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. You see, in the parallel accounts, it says that Jesus had been uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that, that day, teaching a crowd about the kingdom of God and healing people. And whoever had the idea, I don't know if it was the little boy himself or his friend or his parents, he drew a very good conclusion. And the conclusion was, well, if the Jesus can do that before my very eyes, then he can do something with my lunch. He had five barley loaves and two fish. Now, my father-in-law is a baker by profession. My wife, Gabby, grew up in a bakery. And we were sitting together this past spring, and we were talking about different kinds of wheat that they use to bake bread. And he said that it was actually a form of sarcasm to um, kind of put down a baker, and you would say, so what'd you bake today, barley bread? Because barley is not the usual grain that they use to bake bread with. You break it with, with wheat, normally, in, in, in my uh, father-in-law's bakery. Furthermore, barley was, was given to the cattle. You can read about that in the Old Testament when it says that, that Solomon fed his stables of horses with barley. So barley loaves was poor bread. And then in the NIV, they get the translation right here, it says two small fish, kind of like sardines. So this was poor bread and small fish. And is it any reason why they said, but what are these for so many people? What are these for so many people? They are what Paul is talking about when he talks about the qualifications to be used by God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That is what the fish and the loaves were. They fit nicely into that list of qualifications to be used by God.
So I wonder what our fish and loaves are this morning. The things in our lives that we would look at and, and say, but Peter, that disqualifies me from being used by God. He could never use a person as weak as me. I understand that. And actually, Charlie encouraged me when I was probably bemoaning my own uh, weakness one day. He just said, Peter, sometimes the Lord puts us into a place of ministry that is very contrary to our natural temperament and gifting. In the seventh grade, my parents had a parent-teacher meeting, and my teachers told my parents, don't expect anything above a C from Peter because he's not very bright. My brother was a straight A student, but there was very little gray matter left over in the gene pool for me. And then I read Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25, where Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, but you've been revealing them to babes. And I realized it's not aptitude, it's attitude of heart. Thank you. Actually, it was Charles Price when I was a young staff member at Bodensdale. And uh, there was strong encouragement for me to get more education theologically. And Charles Price and Gernot Kunzelman, who were the, Charles was at Cape and Ray, Gernot was at Tawanoff, they said, don't do it. You need to be a student of God's word. There's no question but you don't need two letters behind your name or in front of your name. It was a person like John Hunter, who I went to when he was over 70 years old, and I said, Dr. Hunter, where did you study in order to open God's word like that? And he said, I've never spent a day in a seminary. I said, well, what about the doctor before your name? He said, oh, that's an honorary degree. Don't worry about that. Then I said, well, you haven't answered my question yet. Where do you get your material? And this godly man over 70 years old said, I get that on my knees before my Lord. And my next question was, how do you do that? I was reading Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, and it says of Peter and John there, they were uneducated and untrained men, but this is what people noticed about them. They'd been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. Worst grade I ever got in college, actually there were three courses that, that I got the worst grade in. One was accounting, the other one was computers. This was discouraging. In college I, I began to realize more and more of what I could not and should not be doing. And the third one was public speaking. And then I heard Alan Redpath, who taught me how to study God's word. He said, listen, in Numbers 22, God opened the mouth of a jackass, and he's been using many a jackass ever since. So I'm in good company. There is such a thing called a spiritual gift, and it is a gift. It's not something that you acquire or earn. It's something... He gives based upon your trust in him and your utter dependence upon Jesus. 
So we need to let go of our environment. We need to let go of our own limitations and settle in to the fact that usually we will minister more powerfully out of our weakness and his strength than any way else. Jesus said, have the people sit down. When he said that, he had five loaves and two fish in his hand. He said, have the people sit down. It's interesting, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us what Jesus did. John's gospel reveals how he did it. And when Jesus said, have the people sit down, that was an act of faith. Because he knew something. And in John, we could look all over John's gospel on this. I'll just refer to two passages. One is in John 5 in verse 19. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he is doing. So at that moment in John chapter 6, the father had revealed to the son exactly what he wanted to do. And Jesus said, by the way, you need to know that the son can do nothing of himself. So who am I to assume that I could? And then we have this conversation in John chapter 14 between Philip and Jesus. And Philip says to Jesus in John 14, 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So as the Father indwelt the Son, so Christ indwells the Christian. As Jesus lived with his Father, so he shows me how to live with Christ. And I come and I say, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing of eternal worth. But I thank you that you live in me like your father lived in you. And the single most important fact of a Christian's life at any point, at any time, is very simply the indwelling presence of the life of Christ. And Jesus reckoned with the unseen factor of his father. And at any place and at any time, I may reckon with the unseen factor of the indwelling presence and life of Christ. You see, discipleship is very simply learning how to depend upon Jesus no matter what happens. That's discipleship, learning dependence on Jesus. And Jesus say, said, thank you. You see, we get ourselves into an emergency and, and we panic and we pray, uh, Jesus proves himself faithful and then after he comes through, I say thank you. Jesus never lived like that. He didn't say thank you after the miracle. He said it before. Why? The father 
was given such free reign in the son that the son knew at all times what the father wanted to do. And if there's one point of application for this morning that we can take with us into this next week, at any time, anywhere, we can say thank you for the indwelling presence of Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, I adopted a vocabulary that I learned in the church that taught me more to deal with the absence of Christ from my life rather than the presence of Christ in my life. And so I heard at the end of the church service, Lord, please go with us into this new week, amen. So I heard during a worship service, Lord, we invite you into our presence, amen. Why are we asking him to go with us when he lives in us? Why are we inviting him into our presence when he's already there? I had educated myself in unbelief. I may thank him at all places, at all times, that he lives within me. And then, as we read in James, we can pray, Lord, impart to me your wisdom as to how I may remain dependent upon you in this new situation. What would you expect from me right now to work out an attitude of faith in the test that you have given me? They gave it to them or they gave it to Jesus, it says he blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples distributed it. You see, participation in the activity of Christ is always gonna be better than just observation of the activity of Christ. That's why he involves us, that's why he gives us tests, because he wants me to be personally engaged with him and participating in what he is doing because that's going to give me a, a faith memory. It's going to give me a confidence for the next time. And notice that it says they ate as much as they wanted. That is the generosity of God. Our Lord Jesus never has partial answers. He has complete answers from my situation. Back in that chapter in James chapter one, when it's talking about the testing of our faith, God's word says in verse 16, do not be deceived my beloved brethren, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It's interesting that that is mentioned within the context of the testing of our faith. Because we get into a test and it is easy to assume the worst about God than believe the best about him. And it's easier to blame. It's easier to think low thoughts of him. And so James says, don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from him with whom there's no shifting shadow. In other words, he doesn't change. And if I'm facing a test today, it doesn't mean that the heart of God has changed towards me. His character cannot change. He still has my highest good in mind, and in particular, his glory. So let's close this morning 
And I'll read the last two verses that we want to look at out of John chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. What's the deal here? Is Jesus saying clean up the campground because we want to leave it cleaner than we found it? Is that what he's saying? No. He's saying go pick up the fragments because I want to drive this point home. How many baskets were there? Twelve. How many disciples? Twelve. And that's not by accident. Now somebody's sitting here and they said, Peter, that's going a little bit too far. How can you stretch the text to say that? I didn't. I've just read my Bible a couple of times. And in Mark chapter 8 and verse 14, it says that they were on the Sea of Galilee and they were in a boat. And it says in Mark 8 and verse 14, they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, being aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see and understand? Do you have a hardened heart? And do you not remember when I broke the five, bar, the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you put, picked up? And they said, 12. And he said to them, don't you understand? And those 12 baskets were a testimony to drive the point home. I'm more than enough. Trust me. I'm more than enough. So we learn from this. We serve others out of the weakness of our life, but the strength of his. We serve others out of our own weakness, but the strength of Christ. And secondly, he works according to my availability, not according to my ability. And we need to stop saying but. And lastly, we can live like Jesus in the attitude of gratitude that says thank you. You live in me today. You know what you want to do. I want to learn dependence upon you in a greater way so that I might learn your sufficiency. Thank you that you know what to do. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you lead us into circumstances and situations for which you're fully prepared, Lord Jesus, even when we aren't. Oh, Lord, I ask for your mercy on us when we behave like atheists and say we're Christians. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as we end this service, we don't have to ask you to go with us because you do. And I thank you for those things that are a part of our lives represented in this room this morning, which provide the test 
and also at the same time provide the opportunity to show your sufficiency in a way that we have not realized. So we thank you for yourself and pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.